Judges chapter 5. As we work our way through the book of Judges. Hey, when you think of musical duos, I'm sure that certain names come to mind. For example, Rogers and Hammerstein. Simon and Garfunkel. Ike and Tina. Sonny and Cher, Hall and Oates, B.B. and C.C., Deborah and, Bar- Deborah and Barack. Yep, that's right. They sing the only duet recorded in the Bible. We have it here in chapter 5. As the old saying goes, behind every good man, there's a good woman and a surprised mother-in-law. Well, I don't know about the mother-in-law in in Barack's case, but Deborah was definitely a good woman. She was the fourth judge in the book of Judges. And she rallied a reluctant leader by the name of Barak to fight against the armies of Sisera. You see, Deborah had the backbone that Barak lacked. She was the nudge he needed. And because of her courage in Barak's leadership, Israel won a great victory And chapter 5 records the song that celebrated their triumph. It's a duet. It begins, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hey, this is true in the church, not just in Israel. God is blessed when leaders lead and when people willingly follow. Loving leaders and faithful followers combine to make great churches. Hey, put together faith-filled leaders and faithful followers, and they'll make beautiful music for God. The church today is in need of leadership, no doubt about it. We need leaders with faith to move on, with backbone to stand up, with humility to bow down, and with compassion to reach out. We need leaders with integrity and character. The church today needs people who are willing to step up and stand up and take the bull by the horns and yet trust God completely. We need good leaders, but we also need good followers. Reminds me of a young co-ed whose heart just sank when she read, read the question on the college application Are you a leader? She had too much integrity to lie, so she wrote in no. And the girl was sure that her honest answer would cost her acceptance into this prestigious university. But to her surprise, several weeks later, she received a letter in the mail. It said, Dear Applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we need at least one follower. Leaders can't lead unless there's people willing to follow. And it takes more faith to follow sometimes than it does to lead. Leaders trust God, but followers trust God to lead the leader. You know, the ancient army of Israel had an interesting law. You can go back and read it. Deuteronomy 20 verse 8 tells us that if you didn't want to fight, you were allowed to just go home. A soldier not devoted to the cause would be a drain on the army's morale. And this too is true in the church. We need people who believe in the cause, who sense God's call to be here. People willing to get on board rather than criticize and grumble and pick it all to pieces. Church members need to support the course set by the leader. It's been said when you can't lead and you won't follow, all you do is make a dandy roadblock. Hey, it all came together for Barak and for Israel. Whenever leaders lead and people willingly follow, each one doing their part, working together, God wins a tremendous victory as he did this day. Well, verse 3 says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. When God works, we need to worship and sing praise. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, and he recounts a little history, she recounts a little history here. The earth trembled and the heavens poured, the clouds also poured water, the mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. And Deborah is here speaking of Israel's wandering through the wilderness, but she gives us a detail that we don't get elsewhere. 
Evidently, God sent thunderstorms during those 40 years of wilderness wandering to water the desert floor. Not only did they drink from the rock, but rare desert rains also became a source of water. I'm sure the rains lowered the temperature of the desert. They prevented sandstorms. They provided additional drinking water. Hey, the heavens poured as they came out from Sinai. Verse 6 jumps ahead to the days of the judges. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael. And you remember Jael. (laughs) She was the gal that drove the tent peg right through Sisera's skull. Remember her? Stay away from anybody named Jael. In the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. When the land was at war, tensions were high. It wasn't safe on the streets. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Because of Israel's idolatry, God had raised up Jabin, king of the Canaanites, to enslave Israel. It was God's judgment on his people's idolatry. And because of this period of slavery, Deborah rallied Israel to battle. The only problem was is they had no weapons. (laughs) Notice what she says. There was no shield or spear seen among the 40,000 in Israel. After these years of slavery, they had no stockpiles. They had nothing to defend themselves with. They had no weapons. They all go out to battle with nothing more than with a repentant heart and a faith in God. She says, my heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Speak, you who ride on white donkeys. Those are the rich folks who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road. Those are the poor folks. In other words, rich and poor both should praise the Lord. Far from the noise of the archers, among the watering places, there shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away. Oh, son of Abinoam. I'm sure this is what God wants to say to us at times. Awake. Hey, wake up. Out of your lethargy, out of your laziness, and give me the glory due my name. The Lord's saying to us tonight, awake, awake, and sing a song of praise. Verses 13 through 18 chart the involvement of the various tribes in the battle. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles... The Lord came down from me against the mighty. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples, from Machir, which was associated at this point with the western part of Manasseh. Rulers came down, and from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah as Issachar. So was Barak, sent into the valley under his command. The tribes of Ephraim and Benjamin and Machir and Issachar all helped in this battle. But among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Reuben thought about getting involved. He kind of searched his heart. He kind of molded over. He thought about it, but he never did it. He never took action. I wonder how many Reubenites are here tonight. People come to church and they sit among the sheepfolds, you might say. They occupy a cushy chair. They hear Josh and the worship team pipings for the flocks. Each week they leave with great searchings of heart. Oh, they're stirred by what they've heard, but they never put a lesson into practice. They never take action on what they've heard. They have great searchings of heart, but it never goes any further. Remember what we talked about last week. A good serve always requires a good follow-through. You can talk a lot about serving God and loving God and taking a stand for God, but talk is cheap. 
God doesn't reward good intentions, but good deeds and godly acts. Verse 17, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Here's another three tribes that checked out of the battle. They chickened out of the battle. They sat on the sidelines and each for a different reason. You see, Gilead moved away. He became too distant, too removed to get involved. Dan was out to sea. He was too busy with business to serve the Lord, out on his fishing boats and trading ships. Asher lived too near the enemy. Rather than fight back, he became complacent under the rule of the Canaanites. And how many times have we heard similar excuses? Oh, man, I'm sorry, but, but I just lived too far away from the church to really get involved. Or, or man, I, I'm just too busy with the battles I'm fighting, too busy with work, too busy with my ships out trading and, and doing the uh, fishing and so forth. Or, well, that's just too much trouble, you know. We're at a comfortable place right now. We can't really do that. Are any of you familiar with those excuses? Are we familiar with those excuses? On the other hand, verse 18, Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. Hey, there were two tribes that made serious sacrifices to win battles and to advance God's kingdom. Zebulun and Naphtali, they jeopardized their lives to the point of death. What about you? Are you willing to die to yourself, to your own self-interests, to your own selfishness in order to be a part of what God is doing? Well, the kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. In other words, they got beat. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. Now, this is interesting language. Notice, the stars fought against Sisera. And the Hebrew word star can be translated to refer to any heavenly body. It could mean a comet or an asteroid or a meteor or a planet or even a hailstone. The stars and their orbits fought for God against Sisera. Remember the tremendous odds stacked against Barak. Sisera had 900 iron chariots with the trained soldiers and the weapons that would accompany that kind of arsenal. Barak, on the other hand, commanded 40,000 slaves that didn't have a shield or spear among any of them. Perhaps God came to the aid of Barak, no doubt. Maybe God pelted the Canaanites with huge hailstones. Maybe even a meteorite shower came to their aid. I do believe that Barak was aided by some celestial artillery here. It's possible that the same kind of phenomena that caused Joshua's long day also took place here. Notice, too, the torrent of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. Now, if you've been to, with us to Israel, you've been to the Valley of Megiddo. And you can look a long time for this torrent of water and not find it. See, the problem is, is that river of Kishon is actually a, a dry riverbed that only is used when, when thunderstorms come and overflow in the area. I believe that's what took place, though, in the battle. Thunderstorms played a part in this battle. The Kesha, normally a dry riverbed, suddenly was overflowing with heavy rainwater. And imagine being one of Sisera's soldiers, sitting in your iron chariot, the equivalent of a lightning rod... You're stuck in the mud, your chariot can't move, and suddenly lightning is flashing and popping all around you. Hey, you're in the middle of this intense electrical storm, and you're sitting in an iron chariot. Are you comfortable? (laughs) Suddenly, this chariot has become more of a liability than an asset. It's time to ditch the chariot and run for your life. That's exactly what happened. You know, it's interesting. God has ways of turning the tide on what seems to us to be an unconquerable enemy. He can turn the tide just like that. He can turn their assets into liabilities. 
Well, verse 22 puts us inside of one of those chariots. Then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Mirah, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Miraz was one of the cities that refused to come up and help fight this battle. They thought it couldn't, the battle couldn't be won. Oh, they're being proved wrong now. Verse 24. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. And of course, she's the gal that took one of those tent pegs and cured Sisera's headache once and for all. She drove it right from one ear through the other and pinned his head to the ground. He asked for water. You remember the story. We read it last week. She gave him milk, which was a sedative. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. And of course, in ancient cultures, the fact that a great general died at the foot of a woman added to his shame. God had completely humbled Sisera. Now in the next few verses, Deborah sings of Sisera's mother, wondering why her son is so late returning from battle. Oh, perhaps he's collecting his spoils, the women say. She'll learn the sad news soon that Sisera has been killed. Deborah finishes up her song in verse 31. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, But let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. And so the land had rest for 40 years. Now chapters 6 through 8 recount the amazing story of Gideon, another judge in Israel. But it begins with another cycle of sin and servitude. This time Israel becomes slaves of the Midianites. Verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens and caves and strongholds which are in the mountains. Now these Midianites were nomads. They were nomadic Arab tribes, desert pirates you might call them. And when they went on their marauding binges, they would come into Israel and they would steal their crops, steal their goods, and the Israelis would flee to the mountains. They would run up into the caves for refuge. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them, particularly at harvest time. The Midianites and their friends would ride in and they would steal Israel's crop. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number and they would enter the land to destroy it. And notice the Midianites brought with them a brand new weapon, the camel. They had a cavalry of camels. You know, camels are interesting animals. They're really called the ships of the desert. They barely perspire, and they require very little water. In fact, a camel has three stomachs. Each of his stomachs holds five gallons of water. A camel's hump stores fat that he uses when food is scarce. And when he draws on that reserve, the hump actually shrinks. A camel can travel for a week, cover 300 miles, carry a load of 600 pounds, and never stop for food or water. Even rain won't slow it down, whereas rain can slow down 900 iron chariots, as we've already seen. And a camel's feet, oh my, a camel's feet are tough. They're ideal for walking across sharp rocks and hot sand, 
Compared to Jabin's chariots, a herd of camels were the perfect choice for desert cavalry, long range, high mobility, quick deployment. When the Midianites used these camels effectively, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, an unnamed prophet, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Boy, after all that God had done, and yet they did not obey him. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abrazite, whose son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. When I said threshed wheat in the winepress, you should have laughed because that would be a funny sight. You see, the angel of the Lord appears to a farmer named Gideon. And usually a farmer would thresh his wheat. He would use oxen to thresh his wheat in an open area known as the threshing floor. But notice Gideon is threshing the wheat not with oxen but by himself, perhaps even by foot. Here he is stomping out the wheat but not on the threshing floor but in a covered wine press. And why? Because he's scared of the Midianites. He doesn't want to be seen and spotted and become a target for their thievery. Gideon is harvesting his crop in seclusion because he is afraid of God's enemy. Here is one of the most unlikely heroes in all of the Bible. When God comes to Gideon, he's hiding, he's defeated, he's frightened, he's skeptical. What follows actually sounds like a joke. Verse 12 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. (laughs) God refers to this yellow-bellied, fearful, frightened farmer as you mighty man of valor. Obviously, obviously, God sees Gideon not as he is, but as he can be. Isn't that encouraging? And this is the way God sees us. He looks past our sin and he sees our potential. He calls the weak mighty. He refers to the minion as a man. He sees the fearful as full of valor. He says, you mighty man of valor. You know, we talk a lot about having faith in God, but we almost never talk about God's faith in us. It's shocking, really. God here talks about Gideon being a great leader long before he starts acting like one. God sees the potential in this man, and he knows that through his spirit, he'll be able to draw it out, and God will do great things with Gideon. Tonight, you may be fearful. You may be concerned and worried about the future. You may be all bogged down in your problems, and yet God appears to you tonight, and he says, you mighty man of valor, have confidence that I'm going to do a great work in and through your life. Notice the first word out of Gideon's mouth, verse 13. (laughs) Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? What a great statement of faith there in response to God's words to him. And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about? I hadn't seen a miracle in a long time. Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Notice Gideon's first statement out of his mouth is an admission of doubt. Where is God? He's forsaken me. God is asleep on the job. It's interesting that God doesn't argue with Gideon. Instead, he challenges his faith. He says, then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. 
and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And that right there should have been enough to dissolve all of Gideon's doubts. For if God sends us to do something, God will see us through. Where God guides, he provides. Where God calls, he equips. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. When you hear, have I not sent you? That's all you should really need. But the fact God called Gideon was not enough to strengthen his faith. We're told in verse 15, So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He has such a wobbly faith. All he can focus on is his own inadequacy. Originally, he complains about God not working. Now God calls his bluff. He promises to work through Gideon, but Gideon isn't so sure. He is the least of the weakest. You know, isn't it amazing? We want God to work, just not through me. And when God comes and says, I'm going to do the miracle you've been looking for. I'm going to do the miracle I want to do, but I'm going to do it through you. All of a sudden, (laughs) it's put up or shut up time, isn't it? When our faith gets tested, we need to stop with the excuses. Verse 16 says, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Gideon is about to learn that our part in a work of God is not ability. God is the one who always supplies the ability. Our part is simply the availability. God's job is to work the miracle. Our part is to trust God and to do what he tells us. Verse 17, Then Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. (laughs) Gideon's faith is so weak that he's always asking for a sign, something tangible. God, give me something visible as confirmation. He says, do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. How's that for a sign? And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Burger King isn't the first ones to come up with the flame-broiled burger. It happens right here. He sticks that stick, right? He toasts the bun and chars the meat. Boy, there's a sign from God. And it all impresses Gideon. Verse 22 now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. The man that he was talking to was the angel of the Lord. And remember, whenever the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, it is usually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Jesus could have been the one who had this conversation with Gideon. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there. You know, Gideon was afraid of the holiness of God. That that after having seen God face to face, he might die. God assures him that won't happen. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, to Jehovah, and called it Jehovah Shalom in the Hebrew. The Lord is peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Aborazites. Now, verse 25. Now, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. Apparently, Gideon's own father 
had been a worshiper of the false god Baal, his own father. And God calls Gideon to disobey his father's issue. We're talking about it here on Father's Day. But Gideon's supposed to disobey his father's wishes, violate the tradition of his land, of the faith of his own family, throw it out the window, and make a radical statement for God. Perhaps God might be calling you to do the same. Maybe you've been brought up in a family that rejected God. Or maybe you were brought up in a tradition that was opposed to God. And maybe God is calling you to make a statement to your family, to the people closest to you, a statement for God, to stand up for God. Well, Gideon makes this radical statement for God. We're told, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock. This is his instructions. Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Chop up the the idols. Chop up these images to these false gods. Use it as firewood. Build an altar to the Lord and make a sacrifice to the Lord God of Israel right there using the idols as firewood. What a statement. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Oh, mighty man of valor. (laughs) Now, this was a bold act, no doubt about it. This is a statement. I mean, this is a declaration of protest. This is a deed equivalent to Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, to the Boston Tea Party. I mean, Gideon's faith is rising. He dares to do this deed, but his faith is not quite where it needs to be. He has to do it under the cover of darkness rather than, than actually be seen. He tries to remain anonymous. Of course, God won't let that happen. You know, actually what happens is Gideon tries to enroll in God's secret service. But then he finds out God doesn't have a secret service. God expects all his agents to go public with their loyalty and with their devotion. Now, Gideon's nighttime raid does exactly what it was intended to. It arouses a reaction Among the townspeople, we're told, and when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And when the men see Gideon's sacrifice They want to offer him as a sacrifice. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. And here Gideon wins his very first convert. And guess who it is? It's his father. Because his father comes to his defense. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Suddenly, Joash sees the folly of this idolatry. What kind of god allows his altar to be pulled over and torn down in the first place? What kind of a God allows his image to be used as firewood? Joash challenges his countrymen to let Baal defend himself. If he's big enough to be worshipped, he should be big enough to defend himself, wouldn't you think? And out of the ordeal, Gideon gets a new name. He's called Jerubbabel, which means let Baal plead. If he's really a God, let him plead for himself. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Gideon's act of faith earned him a new name, and it also placed his name on the Midianite hit list, the most wanted list. Because the Midianites, they see this revolt against their gods, against their religion. And they move in to put down this uprising in their army camps in the valley of Jezreel, 
or we might call it Armageddon. Now imagine how scared an already frightened Gideon must be by now. He desperately needs some supernatural help from God. And right on cue, verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. I can talk about him because he's in Mexico. But my son, Mac, is a good roller hockey player. But one year, he played in a league where he was head and shoulders, really, above everyone else in that league. And another one of the parents on our team started calling him the difference. Every time he would fly down and score a goal, they'd say, there goes the difference. That kind of became his nickname. He was the difference, really, between our team and the other teams. But I think that's a great name for the Holy Spirit. He is the difference. The Holy Spirit is always the difference maker. He is the one who makes up the difference, as we'll soon see. Well, then Gideon blew the trumpet, and the Aborazites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. He even put Bibles in all of the hotel rooms throughout the land. No, I'm sorry, that'll come later. Gideon did rally all the people over all the land to fight for God. And the stage is set for another major showdown between Israel and his enemy. Verse 36. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Notice again Gideon's shallow faith. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. (laughs) Now wait a minute. If God says it, it means he's going to do it. No ifs, no ands, no buts. But you see, Gideon has yet to learn to take God at his word. I hope you've learned that. This is why he's always wanting God to confirm his will with a sign. And so he continues. Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. But guys, here's the problems with signs. Signs never produce real faith in God. You see, they only create a more need for signs. Look what happens in verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. In other words, that could have been a fluke. We got to guard against a fluke. And so he reverses the previous fleece. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece also, but there was dew on all the ground. And here's the relevant question for us tonight. When it comes to discerning God's will, should we ever employ a fleece? Hey, it worked for Gideon. Why not for us? Well, first notice, God uses this fleece to prop up a weak faith in the first place. Gideon's faith needed a crutch. I'm sure God wants our faith to be strong enough to stand solely on His Word. I think God would prefer that we learn to take God's Word for granted, that if God says it, He'll do it. I won't say that God never speaks through a fleece, but do be careful. Signs seem to be an Old Testament device, not a New Testament device. Once the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost... There is no more mention of a fleece ever being used in the Bible. Believers are encouraged to walk by the Spirit, not follow fleeces. In fact, just before the Holy Spirit came upon the church, the disciples, you remember, they cast lots. That was a type of a fleece, you know, a device to try to, a mechanical device to try to discern God's will. They, they rolled the dice, they cast lots to try to find a replacement for Judas. And there's evidence 
that their fleece was wrong. I believe that Paul, the apostle Paul, was supposed to be God's replacement for Judas, not the man that they picked, Matthias. You know, it's also enlightening that even after God responds to Gideon's first fleece, it still doesn't settle the issue in Gideon's mind. He wants to rule out some freakish occurrence. And this is the problem with a fleece. It may or may not be from God. For me, it's always better to trust in God's word and to rely upon the clear leading of the Holy Spirit. I think this is a much better approach. Gideon's fleece reminds me of a friend of mine who was struggling with an issue in her life. And she decided that she needed a sign from God. And this is how she started praying. Until one day she was driving home in one of these Atlanta thunderstorms. When a huge gust of wind blew a metal sign off of the front of the building right across the street from her car. The wind blew the sign across the parking lot and across the street, and it rammed right into the front of her car, doing considerable damage. And suddenly it hit her. The Lord must be saying, if you want a sign, then I'll give you a sign. From that moment on, she decided it wasn't a sign she needed. She needed to trust God and learn to take him at his word. True story. Well, chapter 7 tells us, Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. And if you went with us to Israel, we went to Herod Springs. We saw there where God chose the army for Gideon. This battle is going to play out just south of the Sea of Galilee, just south and sort of uh, west of the Jordan River. In verse 2, God reveals how well he knows human nature. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Here's why. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Boy, God knows us, doesn't he? (laughs) God knows that we are glory snatchers at heart. Oh, how we like to grab the glory. And thus God will create such ludicrous odds that there is no way that Gideon or any man can take credit for this victory. God continues. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Now, later we're told that there were 135,000 Midianites. If Gideon had sent nobody home, he would have had 32,000 troops Do the math and you realize that Gideon was initially outnumbered four to one. That looks like some pretty steep odds right there. But when he sends these 22,000 away and shrinks his army down to 10,000 soldiers, now the odds decrease to 13 to one. It's getting worse. But God isn't finished thinning out the army. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whoever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue As a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees. In other words, everybody who lays down flat on his face and just kind of sticks his head in the water and starts lapping it up like a dog out of his bowl, you put them to one side. But then everyone who then drops down to his knees, cups his hands, you know, and lifts the water up to his face, you set them to the other side. And the number of those who lapped putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees, you know, cupping their hands, bringing the water up to their mouth. The rest of them got down on their knees to drink water. Now, 
a good, vigilant soldier is not going to lay down flat on his face and stick his water in, his face in the water. People can sneak up behind him. You know, he's not aware of what's going on around him. No, a good soldier is going to stay alert. He's going to drop down on a knee. He's going to bring the water up to his face so his eyes are seeing what's going on around him. Only a sloppy soldier is going to fall on his face, stick his head in a stream, and start lapping up like a dog. Gideon must have breathed a sigh of relief when he saw just 300 of the 10,000 remaining troops act like sloppy soldiers. Oh, we've only got 300 bad soldiers here. If he has to march with a small army, at least he'll have smart soldiers, 9,700 smart soldiers. But to his surprise, the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Wait a minute. God sends away the 9,700 and leaves Gideon with just 300 and their sloppy soldiers to boot? Now he's outnumbered 450 to 1, and with untrained troops, no less. God finally has the odds just about right. He has created such a scenario where not even the glory-hogging Hebrews are going to be arrogant enough to deny him credit for this victory. And so the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Guys, this is how God works. He uses the foolish and the weak to do mighty deeds. He puts his treasure in clay pots. These are clay pots. God puts his power in clay pots. He chooses containers that won't distract from the contents. He overthrows armies with 300 ragamuffin foot soldiers. God backs our glory-grabbing hearts into a corner. He creates impossible scenarios so that when He comes through, it's obvious that He alone deserves the glory. Imagine a farmer-turned-general, outnumbered 450 to 1, going into battle for the first time with a mere 300 soldiers, all of whom are a discredit to the uniform. Oh, boy. Now, the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Once again, Gideon's weak faith needs a sign, and God provides another one. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. When Gideon had come, there was a man telling by a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. And to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. Now, you know, Gideon's on reconnaissance. He sneaks up. He sees two soldiers. and, And this guy's recounting a dream. He just happens to come up and overhear this. And this loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Strange dream indeed. A bagel knocks over a tent. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. In other words, Gideon's army is compared to a tumbling loaf of barley. But the Midianites understand this as a, as a sign of Gideon's victory. And I'm sure the rumor just started drifting throughout the camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. I guess you could call Gideon's army the fighting donuts. Or the rolling jelly rolls. Not a very flattering name. 
But victory was predicted for Gideon's army. And so he returns to the camp ready to rumble or tumble, as the case may be. Well, then he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Gideon follows the instructions. He gives to each man a trumpet and a torch and a pitcher. But wait a minute. They're going out to battle. What about a sword and a spear and a shield? Obviously, God has another plan. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, oh, about 10 p.m., just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Let's do it together. You ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Imagine here. That would scare any army to hear that from the mountainsides. Now, now these torches probably consisted of smoldering rags, you know, coated with oil, stuck into the end of the jar. Torch was, uh, the jar was turned upside down and the, the torch was stuck through the neck of this ceramic jar. And when the jars were broken, not only did they hear the crash, but the rush of oxygen into the jar fueled the smoldering rags and it set the torch on blaze. And so suddenly you hear this crash and then, you know, all of these flames shoot up across the mountainside. I guess it was as close to a fireworks show as you could have gotten. In ancient times, a battalion of a thousand men would march behind one torch. And so when these sleepy, groggy Midianites who had already heard this rumor about God giving the battle to Gideon, when they saw the mountains ablaze with these torches, 300 torches, they panicked. And their imagination started running wild. And they thought they were outnumbered. And then they heard the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and they remembered the rumor. And in verse 21, every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. Thousands of Midianites died from friendly fire. And the rest of the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerera as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith, and the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Now, in the remainder of the chapter, Gideon calls for backups in order to mop up. And two Midianite princes, Oreb and Zeb, are captured and beheaded. And their heads are brought to Gideon. God worked a miracle, but Gideon got a head. In fact, he got two heads, and of course, two heads are better than one. So. Now, before we leave chapter 7, let's focus for just a second on what happens to the 300 clay jars that Gideon's army breaks on the mountainside, because to me, this is the microcosm of the whole lesson Right here is, is the point we need to take away from this Bible study. You can really say that these lights, the lights in, on the hillside, are what won the battle for God. The crash, the trumpet blast, the shouts, all got their attention, no doubt. But those things lasted only a few seconds. It was these hundreds of lights across the hillside. This is what created the panic and defeated the Midianites. And God has called each one of us 
to be a light, has He not? He's called us to shine His light and His love and His truth to this dark world. You see, I'm afraid that too many Christians are busy fighting the darkness. God never calls us to fight the darkness. God calls us to turn on the light. Hey, you can be in a dark room and you can wail and flail at the darkness all you want. It'll still be dark. But all you have to do is walk over and flip the switch, turn the light on, and the darkness flees. God hasn't called us to fight the darkness. God has called us to turn on the light. But here's the secret. Here's how to shine brightly. A flame burns brightest from a broken vessel. A flame burns brightest from a broken vessel. You see, we all carry smoldering rags. We're like the rags in Gideon's jar. And if left enclosed in our earthen vessel, the flame will die and diminish. But if we can break the jar, the wind of the Holy Spirit will rush in and flame the smoldering rags and ignite a blaze. We burn brightest when we're broken of our pride and our ego and our self-sufficiency and our stubbornness. Always remember, a flame burns brightest from a broken vessel. Well, chapter 8. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. And isn't it amazing how jealous people can be of another man's spiritual successes? Rather than rejoice with him in the victory, they're angry they got left out. And so he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Ebiezer? He's comparing what they did to what he did. God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. In other words, he quiets them with a little diplomacy. Oh, he says, you guys captured Oreb and Zeb. You guys are great. And they believed him and they shut up. And Gideon's got a battle to fight. He didn't have time to sit there and argue with these guys. And in the next few verses, Gideon pursues the Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, and two Hebrew cities, Succoth and Penuel, side with Midian and refuse to help Gideon feed his armies in his pursuit. And Gideon promises both these cities, Succoth and Penuel, that he'll be back. Once he gets these kings, he'll be back to deal with their treachery. Verse 10. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000. All who were left of all the army of the people of the east for, notice this, 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Of the 135,000 Midianites, only 15,000 survived the chaos and carnage that resulted from God's battle plan. They were trounced. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Jogbaha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Harris. And this was bad news for the cities of Succoth and Penuel. What he does is he whips the elders of Succoth with briars and thorns. And then he tears down the tower of Penuel, killing the men of the city. Gideon had promised them a retribution for their treachery, and he delivered. Verse 18, and he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And so they answered, as you are. In other words, they were Hebrews. So were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid. Because he was still a youth. So Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. 
hey, if you're man enough to do it, you do it yourself. And so Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Israel wants to crown Gideon as their king. Put his family on the throne. Create a dynasty to rule over Israel. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, for the Lord shall rule over you. And isn't it amazing? Oh, how God knows our hearts. Isn't it amazing that even after the point God had made in this battle, Israel would have still robbed God of the glory and put Gideon on the throne if Gideon himself had not stopped them. Isn't that amazing? Guys, beware. Often after you've been used by God, people will want to put you on a pedestal. People will want to tell you how great you are. And it's your responsibility to turn it down. We are not pedestal material. Never forget that. Give God the glory. He alone deserves the honor. A truly great person never forgets that God deserves the credit. Well, then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you. You He kind of turned it down. But, got a request. I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And so they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Now, that's a lot of gold. That's about 850 ounces of gold. Notice this ephod was an extravagant piece of work. Besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks, then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. Gideon refuses a crown, but he does mold an ephod. And you remember, an ephod was a priestly garment. It was a priestly smock that the, that the priests wore when they went in to serve God in the tabernacle and commune with God. Now, some people speculate that though Gideon turned down the throne, he did desire priestly influence, and thus he wanted to make this ephod. In the book of Judges, we'll notice that the priests are conspicuously absent. And perhaps Gideon sensed the need for a priestly presence in Israel. Remember, though, the ephod held, it contained two items, the Urim and the Thummim. You remember those from our studies back in Deuteronomy, Numbers and all? The Urim and the Thummim. These were probably two stones by which the high priest would discern the will of God. He would cast lots with these two stones, and from them he would discern God's will, or or else the light would reflect through them in a particular way. Again, they were a device to discern God's will. Is it possible that what Gideon's golden ephod represented was actually a permanent fleece? A kind of mechanical means of deciphering God's will. And wouldn't that be convenient? You got an important decision to make? You're wondering where to go to school or if you should take that new job? Oh, just walk right up to the ephod. Ask your question. Plug in your request and presto, bingo, out pops your answer. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh my, if we had a permanent fleece, a golden ephod, we wouldn't have to walk with God. We wouldn't need to pray. We wouldn't have to draw to Him and quiet our soul and listen to God's voice. We wouldn't even have to fellowship with God. We could just walk right up to that golden ephod and get our answer presto. Well, whatever Gideon's motive, it proved to be a terrible idea. It backfired. For verse 27 says, And all Israel 
played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to get in into his house. They turned that ephod into an idol. And they committed spiritual adultery there before Gideon and before his golden ephod. They denied God and they worshiped this ephod. And that always happens. Whenever you substitute a program for a personal relationship with God. Be careful of these programs. Be careful of the seven steps of the ten rules of of the 40 days or whatever it happens to be. Be careful when a program is substituted for a personal relationship with God. When someone sets up this ephod, just follow these steps and you'll hear from God. God will reveal His will to you. Pop it into the ephod. You'll get your answer. Rather than, no, quiet your heart. Pray. Seek the Lord. Draw close to Him. He'll lead you. He'll guide you. It's the difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. Be careful. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were, were his own offspring, for he had many wives, and many of them were tired, no doubt, after 70 sons. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abarazites. There is strong evidence that though Gideon refused the title of king, he didn't mind living like one. He kept quite a harem, didn't he? His many wives produced for him 70 sons. And it's interesting, he named one of his sons Abimelech, And the word means, my father is king. (laughs) Now that's a strange name for a father to give to a son who had no visions of grandeur, who didn't really want to be king at heart. Makes you question Gideon's motives. Verse 33. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals, and made Baal Bereth their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbaal or Gideon in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. 